Welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the show covering horror movie franchises, one movie and one episode at a time. As always, I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, and uh, we are going to be discussing, we're continuing our drive through the mausoleums and ghost towns of the country as we discuss 1994's direct-to-video Phantasm Three. And I'm not alone. I've got a pair of co-hosts with me today. We have one of our regulars with us here from Dread Central, Daily Grindhouse, Rue Morgue, as well as a frequent contributor to the Losers Club. We have Rachel Reeves. Rachel, how are we? Hey, I am I am great. This is such a great way to start my morning. I'm just so excited to be here with you all. <laughs> Excellent. So no regrets picking this one. No regrets picking Fantasy. Oh, God, Excellent. no. I am just having an absolute blast. Great. Because so. this is a first time watch for both of us, right? Like we are both kind of fan- yep. We are phantasm noobs as it is. So we're both yep. diving into this one headlong. Uh, a little bit scared, but we have someone to guide us here on our journey. We have our own little Reggie Bannister. Shouldn't say little, right? That's not fair. And also, you're not bald. Uh, so I know that. All right. I am going to just introduce you now rather than continue to put my foot in my mouth. No, no, please continue to compare me okay. to Reggie. That's great. Um, you may have had a ponytail at one point. I don't know. Um, but we have joining us from Ghouls Magazine, and you can also find her work over at Certified Forgot, Hear a Scream, and the Moving Pictures Phil Club. Let's welcome Ariel Powers Shab to the show. Ariel, how are we? I am so great. Thanks for having me. I can't wait to discuss this super fun movie with you both. It is. We are super glad to have you back because you were awesome on our Phantasm show. And I think you're going to hopefully explain some things to us, too. I, th- <laughs> I don't know about all that. <laughs> we'll see. But let's start with some initial thoughts right now. And Ariel, why don't you kick things off? Because when we were talking Phantasm, you're like, hey, I'd love to come back for uh, three and five. So what it, were your initial impressions of this? And how does it feel when you rewatch it? Yeah. So I think, as I mentioned on the first episode, I watched all the Phantasm movies for the first time, like right in a row. Um, So within like, like the back to back setup of it works for me. But the reason I really especially like Phantasm 3, Lord of the Dead, um, I mean, number one, we get Mike back, which is fun. And I mean, we kind of get Mike back. We'll talk about it. Um, but I really like the characters in this one. It sort of goes back to its roots with like building on the weird lore. It allows itself to be dreamlike again. And while the second movie is like a really fun action movie, it really just has a different vibe. You know, it's, it's kind of the outlier. Um, it's still worth watching. It's still an important part of like Reggie's journey for sure. But, and I guess technically Mike's journey, but 
It doesn't really feel like Meg's journey. Anyway, so, so I like Phantasm So not a fan of James the Grow is what you're saying. Like It's not his fault, mm-hmm. you know? He's just not Michael. Um, but yeah, Phantasm 3 is just a ton of fun, and I love Rocky, and I like Tim, and it just really makes me feel like we're back in the tall man's world. I mean, just one word comes to mind for me, which is just joy. And like, I'm just so grateful to be on this journey with you all because I'm just having so much fun. I literally watched it right before this recording. So I'm just, excuse me if it's like a little uh, excessive, but I'm like on a phantasm high. Let me just tell you. Be excessive today because as we've already, <laughs> and listeners won't know this through the powers of editing, but I can't speak today. So. <laughs> It was like great. I mean, it's like we're recording this on a Saturday. It's like Saturday morning, and it really like gave me that feeling of being a kid and like waking up and like, all right, I'm gonna eat like cereal and watch cartoons and just like, yay, Saturday, I don't have school. And this kind of has that uh, feeling for me. Like this was just so silly and fun. And I kind of went in with pretty low expectations because I knew it was, you know, a direct-to-video kind of thing. And I knew Michael was back. So it's like, I don't really, I haven't seen the rest of these. So I wasn't sure how I would respond to that. But I thought, I mean, it was a lot better than I anticipated. Definitely have some questions. But I also really appreciate um, some of the developments that they kind of um, unfolded here in this one. So, yeah, very excited to talk about it with you guys. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. It was the first time watch for me as well. I, I tossed it on, I think, immediately after we recorded Phantasm 2. Like, after recording that, I just wanted to get started on the third one and, like, really dug it. Like, I, I thought it was a lot of fun. It definitely has that early 90s, like, straight-to-video feel that a lot of horror yes. movies have, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it was definitely, like you said, Rachel, like that kind of Saturday morning, no chores, I don't have to go to school today feel. For me, it was like that kind of like Friday night, grab something at the video store that you've never Mm -hmm. seen before and like get together with the boys, eat pizza and watch horror movies feel like a lot of fun to it. And what I was thinking like when watching it, because I love kind of putting horror movies in like the context of their time, like what is around Mm -hmm. And this is probably one of the more fallow periods when it comes to horror. Like, obviously, the bigger franchises of the 80s had either wrapped up or were kind of, like, fumbling around a bit. Um, There hadn't really been anything to really take its place. And it's kind of incredible, like, watching this and then knowing that, like, two years later, like, Scream is going to come out at the end of the year and completely change the game and revitalize the genre like because it it feels like those two movies are years apart but it's only a mere two years between them yeah that's wild when you put it in that context Mm -hmm. like it does feel it feels a little late to me it feels like some of the you know slightly later friday the 13th Mm -hmm. kind of films a little bit um or like those middle ones uh, so yeah, putting it like snuggled up next to Scream, it's like, oh, that's interesting. Yep. <laughs> I don't know, weird. We did one on Psychoanalysis. We we did Thinner as a show. Mm. It blew my mind. I did not realize they had come out the same year as one another because that mm. is like you got to be kidding me. Like how much had changed just in the span of a few, or was going to change in like a few short months. I always find that kind of fascinating. Just like. 
with 80s horror, there's definitely, like, 84 seems like when there's a shift, and that's when, like, horror from the 1980s becomes 80s horror, as opposed to what the 70s felt like, so. So, I'll talk briefly about the background here of this movie, um, and then we'll kind of dive into our thoughts and feelings on it itself. Um, in June of 1992, at the Fangoria Weekend of Horrors uh, convention, Reggie Bannister, like they're doing a, fa- a phantasm panel, and they're trading stories about the first two movies, how they were made, behind the scenes stuff, just having a fun time with fans. And when one of the audience members asks during the Q&A, will we ever see a third movie, Reggie, Reggie Bannister spills the beans. He's like, yep, there's a third movie that's coming. And oh, by the way, like Michael Baldwin is going to come back as Michael as well. Like and that was unknown at the time that Coscarelli had been negotiating with Baldwin trying to get him to come back. Uh, and the other big surprise was Bill Thornberry was going to come back as Jody. Uh, after his character was completely left out of the second movie. And what's kind of, like, interesting to note is, like, Thornberry and Baldwin, they had left acting after Phantasm. Like, neither of them were working actors. Like, Bannister, after Phantasm 2, had taken on a few different projects, so he was a working actor. But, you know, Baldwin and Thornberry had spent, like, the intervening, like, 15 years. Like, Thornberry was in Nashville as a working musician with his band and I think doing like studio sessions. Uh, so it was kind of like interesting to see them come back after so long and it definitely shocked audiences. Um, New Line Cinema, after picking up the rights to Jason Voorhees, if not the Friday the 13th name, they had a deal in place to partially fund parts three and parts four of Phantasm. Just the, they had a deal in front of Coscarelli to sign. He had a 40-page treatment, Don Coscarelli, that he had written after part two. Um, There was a really interesting note in it that the roles would be reversed. Like, Reggie would be the one kidnapped after part two, Mm -hmm. and Michael would go on a quest to save him, and he would be accompanied by a monkey companion and a and a love interest, which oh my God. when no. I read this, I read it too quickly, and I read it as the monkey companion as a love interest, and I was like, "What sort of oh, shit no. is Don Coscarelli into?" <laughs> I feel a little bit robbed of not having a phantasm where there's a little chimpanzee, like Smokey and the Bandit, uh, or any which way but loose, like one of those seventies. Oh, Kind of or like phenomena, <laughs> like give it to me. <laughs> so if there's ever a, I, I want a reboot of Phantasm now with just monkey companions. Everybody has a monkey companion. Um, oh god! In some alternate universe, that movie does exist. Oh, I want to be in that universe. <laughs> um, other notes from it: there was a witch's coven and an industrial mausoleum that churned out hundreds of bodies of day for the tall man. I think all those things became victims of like the budget being much smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, Coscarelli brought back Kristen Deem to help out. She had been a fan of the first film and she had been one of the Phantasm fans. I think they would behind the scenes call them like f- either fan fans or f- like exaggerate <laughs> fans-tasm um, oh, when they were referred to as part of the crew. But she had been like a really strong presence in the second movie like she had the unofficial title of hearse wrangling 
but she was a huge help with the storyboards and she was a unit producer. So Coscarelli found her input like very valuable. She was also kind of the continuity expert, much like Daniel Farlands, who wrote Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. Um, he came to the project with basically a huge binder of notes, like detailing all the continuity. And she kind of had that unofficial role as well. So he sends her, uh, Coscarelli, that is, sends her the script, and she returns it back to him with about 35 pages of notes, saying, like, here are some kind of continuity errors between the first two movies and this one that we need to clean up. Uh, here are some things that, you know, might strengthen it. I think she's the one that adds the liquid nitrogen in terms of, like, how do we freeze the tall man? Like, why don't we use liquid nitrogen to okay. do so? Mm-hmm. So, you know, she... Um, is brought back on and she, a lot of the improvements or suggestions that she made like he would go on to use in the final picture um, according to Angus Grimm's journal you know, although the picture was supposed to go to New Line MCA Universal President Robert Blattner offered a substantially better deal for part three than New Line did so which makes me wonder how low Bob Shea's offer was because this is not a big budget movie. Um, so they secured the distri- distribution rights. Sadly, Blattner would actually die in a plane crash before the filming of this movie. Uh, and it actually was put on hold for a little bit. Like all of Blattner's projects are put on hold until they were re-greenlit. So there was some question as to whether this would actually occur. Um, but I just have some notes like getting the band back together, obviously... There's the casting familiarity with Baldwin, Bannister, and Thornbury all returning. Uh, Robert Casada, who had served on the first two movies, comes back as a unit production manager. Mark Showstrom returns after heading the effects of part two. And he spoke pretty openly, like not in a negative way, just in a really practical way of like how when he worked on the Elm Street movies, every movie had a bigger budget. So there was more he could do. He had a bigger sandbox to play with. And this was not the case here. Um, I think it's fair to say that the majority of the budget went to the special effects, but he had a lot less to work with. So it kind of, to me, is like there's the up and down nature of the effects in this one. Um, did you does, did you find like what the budget was? I didn't. I, it's probably not that hard to look up. Because um, the first one was like, wasn't crazy either. It wasn't. Right? Um, it was like the first one was... I think $300,000, but it's also okay. not a super like budget, uh, like two and a half million. So it's, you know, compared to over 3 million they got for the, so you're cutting that okay. by one six. So it's not no money, um, right. but it's still for like Don Coscarelli's vision versus like what he actually gets. Like in his mind, this is probably a $20 million movie. Like everything he was. he's like, <laughs> yeah. so we need two cars to explode. We need, mm-hmm. you know, at least, at least, like it's not a Coscarelli picture unless two, unless two cars explode. Um, but it's it's a substantial. When you only have three million, cutting half a million is a pretty big. It's a pretty big oh, yeah. cut. Um, and the first one's not super effects driven. It's more like mood and atmosphere. So totally, yeah. But they that one every single penny like they. And they also had as much time to shoot it as they want. They did it over the course of a year or two. So, um, 
who's not brought back Steve Patino. We mentioned him in part two. He was on the record of like bad mouthing Coscarelli and everybody else after part two didn't do well. He kind of felt like his contributions were minimized. He went uncredited for a lot of his work. So he was on one hand blasting everyone behind Phantasm 2 in the horror press, but he was also openly jockeying for a return, but he was not asked back. He kind of burned those bridges. Uh, Kelly Pryor of Dream Quest Images is brought on to replace him to create the sphere effects in part three, which there are a lot of them. Um, okay. Bit of a tougher shoot this time around. Like that's just the only note I have there on that in that just a little bit less money and a lot of different sets in a lot of different locations made it a bit of a challenging shoot. Although they there was a lot of like camaraderie behind the script scenes and like, the universal note I have is everybody speaks highly of Angus Scrim being the yeah. nicest, most pleasant dude behind the scenes, like just the complete opposite of his character. Um, there was actually a drive-by shooting at the cemetery they were filming in. Like they oh. had persons drive by yelling at them like, you know, we have family buried here. And then Uzis went off like shortly thereafter. So a bit scary. Um yeah. Uzis? Yes, Uzis or some sort That's of That's extreme. So what's that? That's extreme. Yeah. It's, you know, North Hollywood in the nineties, so it's kind of yeah. in the middle of you know, that was a thing. That was definitely I a thing. It was the culture of its day. Um Alright, so the movie is filmed, it's edited, and it gets some test screenings that are very encouraging, but MCA Universal have no idea what to do with the movie. Uh, they don't really know how to market it. They don't have, you know, there's no big stars behind it. It's the third movie in a series that isn't quite like a name brand, like a Friday the 13th or an Elm Street. So it ends up like sitting on the shelf for a year. And it finally, around Halloween of 1994, gets like a super limited theatrical run. And then it goes straight to video. And even with that, it comes out on video like a week after Jurassic Park does. So obviously, like, oh. all of the attention is on Jurassic Park. They tried to do some things to promote it that were pretty interesting. Like, they told video stores, if you order three or more copies of this movie, we'll send you a, like, sphere clock that has, like, the blades uh as the hands of the clock so you would get like a little phantasm tchotchke which oh my gosh that has to be out there right i we, have to find one we have I to maybe one. spend some time like googling that or trying to ebay it because those have to be out there like i had a client once give me his brother-in-law was like worked on hellraiser 2 and he brought back a bunch of the um lament cubes that they use on that movie. So he gave oh. me one of those at one point. And it was just like f six pieces of plastic. You know, it was not, like, you couldn't move it or operate it. Um, well, that's good. Yeah. Mike, you're not. That is to true. <laughs> yes. Um, but it was one of the coolest kind of like horror things that I'd ever received. Sadly, it didn't survive our move. I have no idea where it ended. So someone out there is like sucked into the Cenobite world. But yeah, I would love a little tchotchke, like a, a phantasm clock. That would be super neat. 
Absolutely. Um, all right. So it's, you know, Angus Scrim tries to promote it, like he does some TV work and appearances, but basically it kind of comes and goes. And I think everyone feels a bit discouraged by that, although they knew, like, all right, we're definitely going to have to do more of these because, like, we can't end on this note. So, you know, we'll talk about that next time we meet with Phantasm Four Oblivion. But right now we're here to discuss Phantasm Three: Lord of the Dead and... Um, I guess the first thing I'll, I'll ask and I'll leave it to you both because I've just kind of blathered on what do we think again of like picking up immediately where the last one left off and it also continuing to be awkward because of recasting <laughs> so you have to kind of show splice in new awkwardly staged footage with what happened in the previous movie it's part of the charm to me because it's so bold mm -hmm. that they do that, you know, and because it's so like they're daring us to question it. They're like, yeah, we did this again. What are you going to do about it? Get on board or don't. And I love that about it because it's the commitment to the actors and the story and telling a particular kind of story. And it's not letting pesky details like humans aging get in your way. And what is phantasm about, if not escaping a flesh prison? Mm -hmm. So yeah. I feel like it, it works and I don't mind it at all. It's ridiculous. And I love it. Yeah. I, I was so surprised that they decided to pull that card again, <laughs> but I was not mad at it. Um, it's like even more ballsy <laughs> to me this time because there's like not even a time gap. Like at least the first one, it's like, okay, this happens, but then obviously some time goes by. Mm -hmm. And here it's like, nope, we're just right back in mm -hmm. it. And I thought that they did a pretty good job about like marrying the two parts and, you know, cutting around, you know, what's his face's actual face. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you see you see his hair a little bit and you see you see her, you know, you see the, the love interest um, there a little bit. But um, but then they work in Baldwin and just it's off to the races. So I was actually, you know, pretty impressed with how they did that. And. Yeah, I was excited to just know that. It's like, all right, we're just going on the road again. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, you know, you could have just had it with, like, Reggie getting tossed out of the car and then it drives off. But nope, like, we're going back to the old mausoleum. We're going to show, like, hey, those really cool effects. Like, they want you to jump right in and get kind of, like, grossed out in the best possible way when you get, like, the melting, the the eyeballs exploding in Phantasm 2. I don't know if we even mentioned that last time is such a cool effect so mm -hmm. you kind of know what you're in for um right away and then what i noticed like liz from part two like the love interest like she gets the newt <laughs> from aliens 3 treatment here and i don't remember if aliens 3 is before or after this movie but i just picture like a young david fincher watching phantasm three at home and being like wait a minute i have an idea how to get around that pesky newt corundum <laughs> At this point, yeah. like, we're just going to kill her off in the first two minutes, so. It also doesn't overstate its welcome. Like, I appreciate mm -hmm. that. Like, mm -hmm. they give you just enough information to, like, all right, this is where we are. This is the world. Oh, killed her off. All right, mm -hmm. cool, awesome. No more of her. You know, it's not like, you know, Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, where it's, like, all right. just <laughs> footage from the even, previous films. You don't have to watch the first one, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I, I did really appreciate that they were just kind of, 
I don't know, very efficient about that decision. Good point. What is the tall man's plan? That was like the first note I had here. He shows up, sees it. Reggie's got a grenade and is like, well, you hang on to Michael for a little bit for me. I don't quite understand what his whole scheme is in part three. And I don't know if that's going to carry forward because in part one, he's after Michael because Michael just knows what he's doing. Like Michael's a nosy kid that just stumbles yeah. on like something he's not supposed to. So the tall man is treating him kind of like a, a loose end that needs to be tied up here in by part three. It seems to be that like Michael is part of some grander design and I'm not quite sure what that is. So, Ariel, you've seen all of these. Without spoiling too much for us, could you give us your own interpretation of what you think is going on here? Sure. Um, I'll keep it contained to what we do learn in three. Mm -hmm. Pay attention to the way the tall man separates the brains from the bodies. Mm-hmm. I well, so something we learn in part three, the, the the lore expands greatly in this movie in between all of the nonsense. And I just love that. I also watched it this morning, so I'm also still on mm-hmm. a high with it. Um, <laughs> I think we all did. I think we all just rewatched it before. It's great on. breakfast horror. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we know he shrinks down the bodies and sends them off to wherever he sends them. I think Reggie says it really eloquently. He's like, he's from somewhere and he sends the bodies to wherever. And it's like, okay, we got it. Well put. But he Mm -hmm. takes the brains out and he puts the brains in his cranial spheres Mm -hmm. that he sends after people. So watching three, you might think he's really decided he wants Mike's brain. He's got a high, like, midichlorian count, right? Mm-hmm. Like, isn't that... I, I feel like in the second one, they were kind of alluding to, like, oh, he has this power, like, this shining power, mm-hmm. right? And it's there's, so there's something special about his brain. And so I just kind of took it as Mike, whether he knows it or not, is capable of something a little bit different. And the tall man recognizes that. I do agree. Don't get that in the first one at all. Mm-hmm. It seems much more just like... Oh, this pesky kid is, you know, screwing up my my game here. But I, I just kind of yeah looked at it like that. So I'm kind of excited. Oh, the brain ball! I like freaked out when I saw that. I was like, yes, we're getting like some weird like gnarly tech involved mm-hmm. and like embracing that kind of like '90s technology thing. This is like Phantasm does hackers or something. I don't know. <laughs> like it was really amusing, and I, I just I love that development. <laughs> I seem to notice a lot of, like, Star Wars sounds whenever the spheres are involved. Like, it sounded like they were directly lifting, like, the sounds of, like, the lightsabers being ignited. And then that weird kind of ball uh, from the first movie, like, the the training ball for Jedis. It seemed Mm -hmm. like they were using those blaster sounds. I'm like, I wonder if... Are Coscarelli and Lucas, like, tight in any way? Like, are they... (laughs) Both of them coming from the indie filming background. Is Lucas a fan, a fan, a phantasm fan, or a fan fan, as you were? Yeah. <laughs> um, and the ball with the eye, it reminded me of like when you know Luke goes to like mm-hmm. Jabba's palace yeah. and like opens a thing like that. Um, that reminded me of that character. Well, you know, let's discuss the the balls now. Let's discuss the spheres now because I had that in my notes for later on. But I think we're here. Um, 
the spheres in this movie are the star of the show. Like at this point, it's like, okay, the big, big reason the audience is coming is because like those are such a cool design and such a cool kind of like creature in and of itself they almost do have a mic well they do they have a mind of their own as we see in this movie Um, (laughs) they literally do have a mind of their own um there are like like michael says to timmy there are thousands of them um in this movie and not quite thousands what we see but we get the idea um is it too much or are we like pretty excited to have like more balls all the time I love it. Give me a yeah. whole pit of them, a whole ball pit. I just, I thought it was brilliant and it made me excited because I did feel very kind of, <laughs> the first two gave me blue balls a little bit in the terms of like, it's it's not kind of filling in the purpose of these or like what they are or how they work. And to me, it was like, okay, this makes sense. This is what he's doing with the bodies. This is why he's doing with the bodies. He's not just kind of a, I don't know, like I thought, in the first one, I think I mentioned that he was just kind of like the manager. Mm-hmm. I didn't think that he had a more substantial role. And it kind of became more clear with this one that like, oh, no, he is kind of the mad scientist making this mm-hmm. happen. He might not be alone in this role, but he does take more of a leadership mm-hmm. <laughs> role in what he's doing with these brains and things. And it makes sense then why these balls like act that way and kind of as they expand upon the different balls and like what they're capable of and the different, like, I don't know, tricks that we see them do um, here and in the last one, I guess it makes sense to me. And so I was happy to see that development and I like the, I don't know. Yeah. I like the idea of just having a bunch, like when they show the ceiling and there's just a bunch of them up mm-hmm. there, I'm like, Oh, that's cool. <laughs> it's kind of the... like a hive. Yeah. Weird. I love it. Here they do pretty much do whatever the audience needs them to do at the time or whatever the movie needs it to do at the time. Like you, it can spy on people. It has an eye and it's like a weapon. It has everything. So it's be- gone from being like a weapon to like whatever we need at this moment. Like we'll just use the sphere and <laughs> yeah. the sphere will do that for us, which is kind of funny. I mean, it's definitely like, Hey, we might as well. Um, he he even uses it as like a crystal ball, you know, like yes. at the beginning and like yes. a few different scenes, you know, or like Sauron or something like it's like the eye, you know, he's like looking and watching. I was just, yeah, it's delightful to see it used in that way. And I think it's, it solves a lot of problems <laughs> for the writers. Like, I don't know. Use the ball. What if they did this? All right. Sure. Why not? <laughs> I, I would love to talk about like Jody in the ball. Okay. Yeah. Let's do that. I'm just curious, like, where were you guys surprised by that? Because I was shocked. I was like, oh, my God, Jody's back. And then, like, seeing him related to the ball, I thought was really interesting. And I loved how it was like a magic eight ball. They're like, which way should we go? Like, oh, (laughs) this looks like the right direction. Great. All signs point to right. (laughs) Early version of GPS. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, um... I was surprised to see Jody because the first time I watched these movies, I didn't read anything about them. So I didn't know the actor was coming back. And I also wasn't ever sure if we should trust him because there's been so many times in the first two movies where a character who seems friendly ends up being just sort of like one of the, like a henchman. Mm-hmm. And so I, Jody is, when he first appears uh, to Reggie, 
and he's like, I need you to get behind what I'm saying. I kind of thought maybe he was like an appar- like an evil apparition. Um, but he's not. Like, he's just Jody the whole time. And it seems like he's using whatever sort of like ghost energy to project himself out there. And then he sort of like collapses back into the sphere until he has enough energy to come out again. I do think it's interesting that his body continued to age after he died. But uh, <laughs> I think that's just not enough movie magic, mm-hmm. maybe. Um but it's so interesting the way, like, there's a scene where Michael puts Jody's sphere on his head and sort of, like, jacks into the Matrix where he and Jody are, like, talking about what to do next and, how like, th- ways to get to the tall man. I was just kind of like, Jody, where have you been? If you could do this, where were you in the last movie? But I, it's great. And Jody would respond, well, you weren't really yourself in the last movie. So (laughs) (laughs) you're distracted Mm -hmm. by the girl. (laughs) Rachel, you had mentioned with like the tall man, we kind of get a better idea of who he is and what he's doing. I almost wonder, like, is the tall man one creature? Because we see at the very beginning of this movie, when it flashes back to the end of the second one, we get this new footage that's inserted of like the tall man crawling out of like the two cylinders that like are the gateway between our world and his and it's a new body that you know completely um perfect condition he just walks over like the husk of the old one like so is it just like one tall man or is there like a whole um slug of them on an assembly line somewhere and one dies Mm. like the next one comes I kind of looked at it like, you know, I mean, he says somewhere in at, towards the end, he says, you have lived in this flesh construct long enough. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of interpreted it as, you know, the body is just a device. Like he transcends a physical presence. Like his body, you know, when they cut off his hands, right, they kind of regrow into these like crazy evil dead characters <laughs> and so to me the body is just a mechanism that he uses and that's just kind of the shape that he uses mm-hmm. and you know he just if that gets destroyed his energy goes back through the stargate and then he you know respawns at his home base and crawls back through so i kind of just looked at it as like oh okay he's not really a man he is something and like he's something else mm-hmm. and this body is just a physical structure yeah. but that does that's not enough to destroy him it just kind of temporarily disables him for a second mm-hmm. so. Seems yeah, like a pretty unfair advantage. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, Tallman doesn't play by the rules. <laughs> he makes his own rules. Exactly. So, so it, and now it feels like we have, like, three different classes of minions. So you have, like, the Jawas from the first two movies, like the little persons mm-hmm. with the ugly faces. Uh, and those are just the compressed corpses of, like, the uh, the bodies he steals, basically. Then you have the brain spheres, which are introduced here. Like, so the persons that are maybe on a higher plane um, Mm -hmm. that he might see. I guess to your point, Rachel, what you said is like, see potential in them. Like there's, oh, there's some sort of power here and we can tap into it. Where do the, it is almost deadites in this movie. And I, like Coscarelli and Sam Raimi are friends. Like Raimi actually made a lot of recommendations for crew on Phantasm 2. And you get the 
Easter egg later on. I think it's the um, bag that's filled up and it has like Sam Raimi's name on it, like all the mm. uh, when all the stuff is drained out of it. Um, what the hell are these things? Are they zombies? Are they deadites? Like, how would we classify like the nurse and then like the three stooges we meet later on? these characters blew my mind number one like they look like they were from like las vegas mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like wait they're like dressed like his necklace with like the gold dollar sign mm-hmm. yes. like, what is this like this is ridiculous and she looks like she's like out of showgirls and they're just like raiding these towns like what is that? i don't understand it's, what this group is but i loved it very 90s it is like it is the yeah. early 90s <laughs> But yeah, they call them zombies, or at least Rocky calls them zombies a few times. Mm-hmm. And but they have more personality, yeah. which is interesting. So they're just kind of like yeah, they're more like deadites, I guess, in that they are a little bit you know wittier <laughs> and have a little bit more of their personality. But I'm not exactly sure what their purpose is, other than to just be amusing. <laughs> they're the muscle. <laughs> Right. Yeah. yeah. And they're obviously they're pretty disposable. Like if you need to get rid of something, if you're like, well, we don't mind breaking a few om- uh, eggs to make some omelets here. You can get rid of these people pretty easy. They're cannon fodder. Mm-hmm. They kind of seem like a quick fix version of the Jawas. Like we don't have time to make you into the minions that I usually use. Mm-hmm. We're just going to real quick reanimate your corpse. Mm. Now go get them. And doesn't really matter if they die. Like, it kind of feels like a duct tape solution for the tall man. Yeah, that's a good point. Also, there's, like, the Henry Warden, like, My Bloody Valentine, like, gravedigger people that pop yeah. up. They were in the last one, too, but they also popped up here. Just, like, for a second, though. Mm-hmm. And also, it's like, okay, I don't... Did they just dig up bodies and drive the hearses? I'm not exactly sure where they 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 were there for a second and then they disappeared. Yeah. So I'm not ex- I guess I guess their sole role is to dig up graves. I don't yep. know. So let's talk a little bit about the characters of this movie. And what I found interesting is there are a lot of parallels to the first movie. Like this third one, in a lot of ways, acts as like a nice kind of mirror to the first like to your uh, point Ariel you had said how they move away from like the action setting mm-hmm. of the second movie and they allow it to have that more kind of ethereal dreamlike feel to it and I think a lot of that is reflected in the characters we see first what do we think of like you know Reggie Bannister in the second movie he establishes the co-lead he's established as kind of like a man of action he's kind of like your ash in the second movie mm-hmm. um and I think you see that continue in this movie where he is a bit more of a quipster. Uh, like I have my note here, like Reggie, action hero, child protector, quipster, and sex pest is basically how I would <laughs> yes. describe him. What do we think of him as fully being established as the lead? This is very much Bannister's movie. Mm-hmm. Thank God they were able to have him in all these movies. Like, I... I mean, the franchise is resting on his involvement mm-hmm. at this point. Like, he's the one through line. I mean, Angus Scrim too, obviously. But as far as the kind of energetic, affable character that we care about, it's mm-hmm. Reggie. And yeah. I do think that he's very consistent in what he's given his character throughout. So it's just, it feels right. It feels great. 
I'm obsessed with his continuously wearing long sleeve shirts under his flannel shirts. Um, <laughs> even in his like sex fantasies, he has on the layered shirts and yeah. just leaves those on, which I just, you know, I, he's just so endearing. <laughs> yeah. And mildly capable. Yeah. Well, he's like, he's just like sort of, I think I said this in the first episode, like we should all be so lucky to have a friend like Reggie, like mm -hmm. he'll just have your back. Um, yeah, I agree, Rachel. I think like, he's just exactly who he is. And we've come to know and love it. And I know we're not talking about Rocky yet. But when we do, I think Rocky is the perfect balance for Reggie in this movie. And we really need her. Otherwise, Reggie could feel like too much. Mm -hmm. But Rocky can be a little bit of an audience surrogate to be like, settle down right now and Reggie's kind of like okay and so we all mm -hmm. go on with it but I think part of the reason Reggie works so well just being like kind of a quipster and a pest is because Rocky's there like shut up and settle down yeah what well, it feels to like Bannister had grown as a performer between part yeah. two and part three like it just you can physically see him getting more comfortable with the role and with his own performance as each movie goes on. Like one of the comic scenes of this movie is when they're at the motel and Rocky like leans into the car window and it's like, Oh Tim, do you want to come into the hotel? Like, you know, you can stay in our room and Bannister is just behind her giving like the Heisman sign. Like, Nope, you don't want to do this. Like, <laughs> just like, don't, you know, don't cock block me kid here. You know, just, and it's like a really funny scene. And I don't know if he would have been like the Reggie of part one probably couldn't have pulled that off. Like I just yeah. keep thinking of the guy that runs in that is, that is like saying things like we're hot as love, you know, just like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't know if he could have pulled that off um yeah so it is good you know that these movies like really belong to him and i think in part of that we'll move on to talk about michael part of that reason is you know at this stage like michael baldwin he's not a, really an actor like he this is his second role in anything uh and mm -hmm. it had been like a solid like 15 years between performances so michael in this movie although it's great to have uh, Michael Baldwin back like he's given a lot less to do than like James LeGrowth was in the second one he's more of like a plot bobble like he is the princess that needs to be rescued from the big bad like you almost see like different act breaks you on almost want to see a title card come up that says but the princess is not in this castle and then they have to <laughs> move on to the next set piece what do we but I think we all like the return of Baldwin to the role right what do we think I think it's nice seeing him. I I I was happy to see him. I thought he did well. It's funny that you said princess. I didn't think about that. Yeah, because when he's like at the mausoleum, he's like Leia trapped in like the thing and they like break him out and Reggie's like Luke and like, I'm here to rescue you. <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't even think about that. That's funny. Yeah, it's like we get him back. We have this scene at the beginning where we're like, yay, Mike's back. And then he's like gone again. And we're like, dang it. And then Reggie gets another little boy to travel with him. So it's like we keep sort of having Mike and then not having Mike and then having a Mike replacement. But um, I, I'm i not sure why it is. Maybe something about the performance or maybe... It, 
I, I don't know, but I feel super connected to Michael Baldwin's Michael mm-hmm. character. Mm. And so when he's on screen, I'm just like, my heart goes out to you. I want you to get through this. I know you love your brother. Like, I still sort of think of him as the little kid from the first one yeah. because we haven't really seen him do much else other than that. So I'm kind of like protective of him. So, yeah, I like having him back. Yeah. I think a lot of that goodwill does come from the first movie because he mm-hmm. is like I is a exceptional in that movie given what it is like he's a pretty easy character to root for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of awesome seeing this like thirteen year old kid like hotwire cars and like break into like he's having an adventure. Is like the way I would put that. Like as a kid, we all want to have adventures, and to see that on screen is pretty yeah. neat. Doesn't hurt that he kind of looks like the kid from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> So kind of like pretty easy to root for, you know, Charlie from that movie. Mm -hmm. Um, That's right. So it's kind of fun seeing him back. He just, I think to Coscarelli's like credit as a director, he doesn't like overwhelm Baldwin with like, I'm going to give you too much to do. A lot of which like he may not have been able to do yet as a performer. And I don't know, like I'll watch part four and five and, you know, maybe with like time, like he'll have grown and they'll have more to do. Like, Ariel, you could speak to that when we talk about um, Ravager in a couple weeks. Um, And I know I think he teaches acting now. I think like that's one of his like current Mm -hmm. jobs. He's like an actual like acting coach. So he's gone on to like do other things but here i think it's pretty smart to bring him back it's going to make the fans happy it's going to get get some press um but coscarelli's like smart enough to know like okay but i need to put things in like reggie's hands if i really want to kind of have things kind of carry over here um and then rachel i see you going through your notes do you have anything you want to add to that i i just think yeah i, I agree that it was smart not to mm use him too much Mm -hmm. for multiple reasons i think it makes sense you know because you know baldwin wasn't necessarily a pro at this point and then also just thinking about his character in the first one and the second one what i like is that we kind of yeah we, we feel that sensitivity about michael in this one the second one it was a little bit more you know bombastic like his grief wasn't necessarily as up front and here i i do think you kind of feel the the past like every we think about what michael's been through Mm -hmm. and in both of those earlier films so i do appreciate that they didn't make him yeah like a huge action star or like you know just something that would be out of character like everything Mm -hmm. he does in this feels true to the michael that we know and everything that michael's gone through and so it makes sense that and once jody gets introduced clearly he's gonna be like i have to like find out like you're back okay like what's going on like he's clearly gonna be a little bit more emotional um knowing that his brother is out there so seeing him kind of take more of like an internal you know at one point you know meditative that kind of approach Mm -hmm. to tackling this like it it feels right and so i appreciate that they were a bit sensitive with this character um yeah not just the actor but also this character that they've given us so Mm -hmm. that's just i don't know i i think that having don coscarelli involved at every stage in these movies like these are why these films are so they feel that way. Like you think about the mm-hmm. Chucky series too. Like we talk about like Mancini's involvement. It's like, because these people, these writers, these directors, they know these characters. And so they give them roles that 
make sense and are honoring those characters. And this is just another example of what can happen when that the, the, that yeah. situation allows for that. It's great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very much Coscarelli, one person's vision from movie to movie. And although he might not have a set in stone plan on where each movie is going to go like it doesn't you know phantasm 2 it doesn't feel like that springs from like an immediate idea from the end of the first phantasm and obviously Mm -hmm. there uh we we were robbed of like having a monkey companion in part three um (laughs) robbed right so even though we might not have a, a concrete this is like part a to part b to your point like when you have one person who is creating these characters whole cloth and is imagining their backstories. You get something that is like, it just makes, even if it's not perfect, it can make more sense than if you brought in, like you watch the Elm Street movies. And as much as I love those movies, um, it's probably my favorite series overall. There are wild, it oscillates wildly from movie to movie, even Mm -hmm. when you have returning characters, like what the tone it's going to strike is going to be. I want to ask too, like you both mentioned Jody's return and um, having him and Michael reunite and having that be kind of one of the emotional kind of cores of the piece. Feels like we get robbed of it pretty quickly though, right? Like they have a brief like moment to reunite, like all three of them are together again. And then like a moment later, uh, Reggie is like out, out conscious on his back. Michael is gone and Jody is trapped back in the sphere again, just kind of tagging along. Like feels like we do get robbed of that pretty quickly. There's one scene, I think, where uh, they're kind of in like Reggie's mind and Reggie, Jody, Michael and the tall man are all there. And it's like, it's like the A-team coming together or the Avengers or something where you're like, after 15 years, all these characters are in one place again and then they go their separate ways. And I do think that adds to the emotional stakes. Like, we can't really have Jody back. He's dead. And it's hard for him to appear and speak. And so he has to use it sparingly. I think it could be kind of a cheat if they just had unlimited access to Jody mm-hmm. in the third movie. Um so it, you know, it does feel a little bit like robbed, but I'm also like, I think that makes sense. Okay. It, I do think it's smart. Yeah. Because if it was that easy to come and go, like, why are all these other, you think about all the other people that the tall man has, you know, ca- trapped in their little tiny brains and these balls. And so it's like, why don't they just, I don't know, you would think there would be some sort of like coup of some sort if they were all able to kind of manifest in that way Mm -hmm. or think that way or i don't know maybe they would zoom off and warm the next town also side note i didn't really think about it but until they saw the map and i saw because i live in boise and when it said boise i was like oh shit i'm in tall man territory i better watch it (laughs) so like you know i would appreciate it if like one of these balls like came and like warned us you know that if like he's coming down the coast and like he's coming down the highway like you better watch out so i want to pack a bag and move yeah, so so maybe there's something about, you know, the presence of Reggie and Michael being so close that's that's somehow I would like to think like strengthening Jody and makes him able to kind of manifest temporarily as this. But yeah, if it was too easy, it would open up a lot of plot holes that wouldn't necessarily make sense, I think, for the bigger picture. Okay. 
So let's move on to Rocky. I think one of the there's two very welcome additions to this movie. There's Rocky played by Gloria Lynn Henry, and she talks about like her experience at getting the role and how she'd been auditioning for a number of things, not really getting them, um, and actually filing for like unemployment on the day she actually got the call that she was going to get the part. Uh, she was like considering like maybe Hollywood's not for me. So she talked about her audition. And like walking in and being like one of the only women there with like a shorter haircut and having that more kind of athletic look to her. And she's like, I'm going to get this role. Like she felt really confident. Um, She's pretty great. Like she looks a lot like Blade. Like that was the thing when I'm watching this movie. Like you see Rocky in this movie and she could be like Blade's twin sister, basically. They're both kind of rocking like the black spandex leather look they both have the shades like she obviously has like a a flat top look to her i mean she's pretty awesome total badass character and i do like that it would have been very awkward if there was a real romance between her and reggie and like Ari, i see you making a face like yeah like <laughs> not that reggie is not worthy of love and affection no but no is, not at all but it wouldn't make sense at all for Rocky to sleep with him. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, Reggie is, like, the dad hero of mm-hmm. my dreams. <laughs> no problem there. But, like, Rocky is so... She's a little bit of a fish out of water. And she even points that out at one point when they're starting to get together. And uh, Reggie and Tim are like, why don't you come with us? We can all fight the tall man together. She was like, imagine the three of us trying to do that. And I appreciate her so much because she stays really true to herself throughout, which is not something the love interest in the previous movie did. Like she was just a (laughs) plot device, Liz. Um, but Rocky's like, I'm not here to be the love interest. I'm here because we have a job to do. She, you know, Reggie, basically sexually harasses her it was a different time i guess meant to be Um, played as charming right but it's just kind of gross but she's like you know if you keep coming on to me i'm gonna tie you to this bed and leave you here and like go to sleep um and then at the end of the movie she gets away she's like i'm not doing this anymore i didn't mean to start doing this in the first place like her friend dies like, when we first meet Rocky, she is, you know, in the in a mausoleum with her friend who dies by one of the cranial spheres. So, like, Rocky gets a little bit of revenge, ends up protecting a child, helping to save Mike. And then she's like, I'm, I'm not going to keep doing this. And she drives away. And I'm just like, Rocky is my hero. I want to be just like her. Because she's just, like, so true to herself and she doesn't let Reggie take advantage of her, and she doesn't do- get like get herself killed. I just love her so much. Yeah, my notes just say I love Rocky. Fucking nunchucks! Like she <laughs> is so badass and confident, and I mm-hmm. think that's part of her hesitation to join them is that she knows like I'm the most capable one here. Like I'm mm-hmm. gonna be put in this role of being the one that actually is able to fight she mentions that she was in the military at one point Mm -hmm. like she's trained and so like what you know uh motivation does she have to take on this kid and this guy that like won't 
you know, stop trying to get his hands all over her? Like, what? what is, <laughs> why is she going to put her life on the line to protect these two? And I, I think that you're right at first. Yeah, she has feels a sense of duty, a sense of revenge. But then after a while, she's like, all right, like, I'm good. I like I, I know when to cut and run. And now seems like a good time. So I'm going to show myself the door. Goodbye. Okay. Good luck. And I just love how. Yeah, she's funny. She's confident. She looks badass. She gives me also like Grace Joan vibes. Yes. Just very, just everything about her just exudes just awesome, badass, you know, energy. And yes. I am here for it. And I, I, I'm glad to see a female character presented in this way in this franchise mm -hmm. because so far every single female character has been somehow sexualized and she's still sexualized but doesn't um there's no acting on that. Mm -hmm. And she like, has Reggie. agency. Yeah, she has agency. She is not interested in that. Like sorry, she's like sorry dude, you know, give it up. And and so even though other folks around her are trying to put her in that position, she's not having it. And so I just really appreciate having a character like that who also stands in for kind of the, the capable action hero of this. Like, I would love to see what happens to her after this. Like, where is Rocky? Like, I want to go see what she does because whatever it's, she's going to do, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And to your point about her, like, being sexualized and having her own agency, like, Reggie doesn't give it up even after that first night where she literally handcuffs him to a bed and rolls over and goes to sleep like the next day when she's like oh it's a little bit cold out here he's like well you know one way to get heat is like both sleep in the same sleeping bag it's like oh dear reggie you know <laughs> and there's a version of this movie where like she eventually gives into his quote-unquote charms um and mm -hmm. they end up together somehow. And I do love that they don't. And, like, once the job is done, like, to your points, she's like, all right, um, don't want to be a mom to this weird 12-year-old kid who might murder me if I, like, make him eat his vegetables. And <laughs> uh, don't want to be a partner to a guy who could be my grandpa. Like, I'm out. I'm going <laughs> to drive away yeah. here. Um, but she also is, like, when the job is going on, like, she's loyal. Like, when, mm -hmm. you know, Reggie's in a tough spot, she's like, get your hands off my man, you know? And and is more than capable of taking care of herself. Like, a really welcome addition to the series. And I know she pops back up again in part five. I just don't know how oh, yet. Sick. So, yeah. I'm here for it. Pretty Can't cool wait. Character. Um <laughs> But let's move on to our other new character. Yeah, we have a little munchkin joining us this time in Tim, played by Kim Con uh, sorry, Kevin Connors. Um, he talks about like auditioning for this and like going to like three auditions a week and like how it was very like physically demanding. Like they would have him to do a lot of athletic stuff, knowing that that was going to be kind of the role of this kid. Um I see Tim as a character where, like, Coscarelli watches Home Alone and thinks, like, what if Kevin McAllister actually straight-up murders the Wet Bandits in Home Alone? Because that is very much this kid. Like, it's actually, like, on rewatch. I'm like, this is kind of terrifying. Like, this kid is totally dead behind the eyes. And yes. he has seen some shit. Like, he has seen his dad murdered. He has seen his zombie dad murder his mother. He has um, 
seen his parents reanimate as zombies. He has seen his mm-hmm. whole town basically get murdered by the tall guy. This kid's not coming back from this. Like, there's no therapy for this kid. There's no, like, let's yeah. process your feelings or, like, draw me your emotions right now. Like, <laughs> this kid is just dead behind the eyes, will straight up, like... What really got to me is when, and you don't see it on screen, but you see him aiming the gun at like the crook in the grave and then it cuts away and mm-hmm. he just straights up, puts a bullet in the dude's head. Like nine-year-old kid, just like ain't no big deal. Uh, he's yeah. fucked up. I like his um, knife clown home security system. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. <laughs> it's just this scary clown scarecrow thing with a bunch of knives in it that flies down at the door like not only are you gonna get stabbed but you're gonna be terrified while it's happening because there's a clown flying at your face yeah he's great with an axe throw like i mean he just buries that thing like that is a that is a man with that he would grow up to be liam neeson and taken basically (laughs) like he is a kid with a certain set of skills um and i like you know he's not the precocious kid like there's he's mm-hmm. definitely different from mike in the first movie in that he's a straight up murderer um but it's hard <laughs> to blame him they even kind of dress him like mike a little bit like he has the yeah. jean jacket like he's your definite stand in here um you know and i do like that he's not impervious like he uh, he's still pretty tiny and if you're much bigger than him and get the drop on him uh, he's still going to wind up getting tied up or something. So, Rachel, what do you think of, of the addition of this little murderous preteen? Oh, I mean, I found him to be really amusing. I think the actual, you know, Kevin Connors does a pretty good job. Like, little kids can be really hit or miss. Mm-hmm. But I think that he's does a good job at kind of selling that confidence and that capability. It's interesting to me that you never see that break. Because, like, he is a little kid, and you don't ever get, we don't ever really get a moment of him to, like, act like a little kid Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, you know? Like, he's never goofy, or there's never something where he's like, what's that mean? Or, like, you you never see that at all, or see him, like, sad, (laughs) or having a moment where he's, like, actually scared. Um, So I, I do think that. I wish there would be a moment of that to kind of give him some childlike humanity. But I mean, yeah, the Home Alone stuff, the red sweatshirt with the like band across him. It's like, okay, clearly this is exactly what this is. And yeah, he's just an incredible shot. Yeah, and has no problem just like burying these people in his front yard. I don't know. I almost wish there was like a scene when I I wanted the, you know, the the Las Vegas wet bandits to be like, I wanted him to call him like a little jerk. Like, <laughs> like I really, I was, yes. Because it's like, it's so obvious. It's like, why even like try to hide that, that that's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, that is something I love about these films. Like Coscarelli makes no bones and no attempt to like hide his influences mm-hmm. and to like, it's like, clearly these are films that he loves and I don't see it. It doesn't come off as like theft you know, I do right. feel like everything that he's doing is coming from a place of like love and appreciation with like a little wink. And so I thought it was fun. And it also gives Reggie, you know, a little cohort and keeps him going and helps kind of, yeah, make up for Michael's weird 
you know, I don't know, journey that he's on as well. It, mm-hmm. it, it injects some energy into mm-hmm. the pace and the literal road trip that they're on. Totally agree. Yeah, it would have been great if he, like, tried on some aftershave or something. And then <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> something. <laughs> you know, it, the one moment of levity he has is when he sneaks back into the CUDA and mm-hmm. he kind of pops up the trunk as the driving away from like what is seems like a makeshift orphanage that you know mm-hmm. like just kind of popped up on the spot like it's pretty fortunate that you know reggie happened to turn into the one place when he was looking for directions where like oh by the way uh i am also the town foster mom with like a dozen yeah. different kids here um so yeah and i i look at these characters and when i look at like the end of this movie it kind of ends the first trilogy and it kind of sets it up. So you have like a new story that can continue say with like Michael in the role of the tall man or the adversarial figure, um, Reggie and Tim being the new Jody and Michael team. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Rocky or Jody in his orb form being the new Reggie, like the new sidekick character or kind of like, you know, third lead character coming back like at the end of this one it and i don't think it's going to go in this direction but it looks very much like that is the story that you could be telling going forward with more of these movies because i think you have to look like angus scrim is probably 70s at this point like late 60s early 70s mm-hmm. like getting up there and you even though he's your main villain of these movies like the tall man's never in these movies for that much like he's probably Mm -hmm. in it more in this movie than he is even the first one but even then it's not a massive role this doesn't feel like it's more than the others but it still doesn't feel like a massive role Mm -hmm. he feels in this one like he feels more diabolical almost in this one and less like physically imposing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which you know makes sense for obvious reasons like he's aging i do think he talks more like actually says more lines Mm -hmm. in this one which kind of like takes away some of that you know jason mystique a little bit and yeah he just kind of strikes me as more just like a, a mad scientist type rather than just a i don't know a slasher kind of stand in character but yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you guys felt about that. If you thought he was almost less scary in this, but yeah. more more evil, but less scary. I don't yeah. know. He does a lot of eyebrow acting in this he one, does. <laughs> which is fun. But it, it it adds to the mad scientist vibe, you mm-hmm. know, it, and makes him seem more a little bit off his rocker, but not like a stone faced killer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, somewhere Dwayne the Rock Johnson is looking at this performance, going like, "Ooh, the <laughs> eyebrow raise! I could do that." Yes. So all of it comes from Phantasm Three. So I think the other, the only other thing I had, I really wanted to, I wanted to talk about was like the effects of the movie because they mm-hmm. are, even though like it is a lower budget affair and there's less money to work with, like the the only effect that didn't work for me was seeing the face of the minion early in the movie like you see it and it looks very much like a static kind of rubbery monster mask uh where in the second movie when you see them exposed like they look like actual like living creatures but other than that um the big thing here was like the orb 
being implanted inside of the skull and oh, like yeah. the yellow pus really popped out uh like it just looks super gnarly like i think i made a note like watching the hospital scene i'm like i wonder what that shit tastes like like when it gets into uh, reggie's when it's mouth. in his mouth yeah yeah yeah, oh, it's just, yeah it's super gross um but like it looks great like reggie i'm uh, sorry michael kind of like lifting up his hairline and you see yeah. the orb like in like that is a really nasty effect yeah yeah I will say this continuously surprised me because I have like I have got blinders on. I'm not reading anything Mm -hmm. like I'm not looking at letterbox reviews like I don't want to know where this is going because it has continuously surprised me. And it's like, what is happening? This is blowing my mind. And I love that it feels like anything can happen. And Mm -hmm. yet that would be okay. So because I did not see that coming when he yeah, like the ball in his head is like just so gross and I I thought they executed pretty much yeah, all of the effects like really well. Yep. And it was very evil dead as we've mentioned. And it felt like um they didn't overdo it at any point. Like every time I saw an effect, I was like, yes, I wanted exactly that right there. Mm-hmm. So they just did it really smartly, I think, in this one. Even the spheres, like the movement of the spheres and just the way that they're flying about and the different spheres that we get. Like I know I've talked about, we've already talked about those, but I do appreciate like how much variety there was and the movement that they had. It did feel very... I don't know. It didn't feel cheesy to me. Yeah. Like, I, I do feel like this movie actually holds up in a lot of this. Like, yeah, we don't get any, like, back tall men, like, coming out. Like, those kind of, like, really involved practical effects. But the ones that they did do, I think were all executed yeah. really well. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the sphere work is, like, remote control work this time, too. So it's, like, someone operating them. Like, the comparing that to, like, the first two movies where it's a lot of optical effects and a lot mm-hmm. of times it is someone like literally throwing the sphere and mm-hmm. then like showing it or f- doing it in reverse so that it looks like it's flying forward. Um, so there is that kind of like, uh, it's still, it looks great like in the first two movies, but there's maybe more of a smoothness here and like the spheres yeah. can do more. They seem to like turn on a dime um, and they are in more like it's the first couple of movies sometimes you're just like why doesn't someone just duck you know because like <laughs> they don't seem to handle like transitioning from a very specific height very well where here they do i think because of the remote nature like they can do a bit more mm-hmm. um what else do we have like rachel i see you going through your notes there i've got what yeah. i wrote so I do think I like the score in this one better. I'm just going to say I was not really a big fan of the Phantasm mm-hmm. 2 score, but I did like how here it feels. Yeah, we get the same themes, you know, the great mm-hmm. old Phantasm themes that we've had, and I love that. But I do feel like they were um, adapted. You get some guitar elements. You get some orchestral elements. It feels a bit bolder and a bit mm-hmm. more polished. And I just, I'm just impressed. Like, I know this had a smaller budget, but I really went in thinking this was going to be like, you know, a little bit garbagey. And I, you know, it's fine. I love a good garbage film. Like it's fun. like that doesn't necessarily, you know, limit me or make me not want to watch it. I just kind of thought like, all right, where is this going to start looking like direct to TV or something? Yeah. But I was impressed by it. There was a lot of different sets. There's some good lighting. 
um, you know, the action sequences that they did have, the effects. Like, I, I'm just really impressed by this. And I, oh, yeah. and there's a, a gas station harbinger. And I just, I mean, classic horror things, you mm -hmm. know, that I just really, I, I really loved. <laughs> That's the exact phrase I wrote down. I wrote down gas station harbinger. <laughs> but we also get a second harbinger at the motel. Yep. I was like, this movie is just sick with harbingers. I loved it. Mm -hmm. Just, yeah, don't go down there. Toxic spill or whatever. Yep. What, what, what did they say? Or what, it was like a toxic spill the first time. And then like the second time, what did they say? It was like anthrax or something. I don't I know. I can't right. remember yeah. what they, they anthrax, said. But yep. Is it anthrax? And it's just like, what is going on in Oregon over there? Like, I kind of think that guy is rethinking every choice of opening like a motel right near the quote unquote anthrax spill site. <laughs> yeah. Business yeah. is not exactly booming at this location. Yeah. I also really, really like the cotton candy pink hearse. And mm -hmm. I think my only bucket list item is to have a pink hearse now. Okay. So, mm -hmm. gotta work on that. Well, you need to talk to Andrew from our part two episode. Apparently, with his <laughs> hayride. His hayride yeah, hearse? His first hayride. He might know a guy that can get you connected. Hey. It is right. pretty funny that this trio just happened to have, like, that was their vehicle of choice. It was yep. like a pink hearse. And mm -hmm. it's yep. like, oh, that's convenient for the tall man. <laughs> like, yep. In interesting. All I right. can't see the tall man <laughs> driving a pink hearse, though. I can't. At the end of the day... That one did have there's if he's gonna sacrifice one of his many, many hearse vehicles, he's probably the kind of guy where like the pink one is gonna go. I mean, I don't know. Nothing would surprise me in this franchise. I guess we'll see. It's the Phantasm and the Furious now. They're okay. so many cars. I, Oh yeah. We need one, yeah, with flames on it. Like, <laughs> yes. let's do it. Then yes. that, that like that like you know, they have they race with the CUDA and it like you Vin know, pops Diesel up and, and the oh, Reggie hit the Nass. Yeah, I'm here for this crossover event. Let's do it. <laughs> I almost made a tasteless Paul Walker joke, but we will Don't, leave that no, be. Too soon. Too soon. We'll leave that be. What else do we have? Anything else? Um, I just wanted to mention my favorite line delivery in the whole movie is when Reggie first sees Jody and says, Jody, what are you doing here? You're dead. But he doesn't say it like, oh my god, I'm seeing a ghost. He says it like, you're supposed to be at work. Yep. Or like, mm -hmm. I thought you were elsewhere today. He's just like, what are you doing here? You're dead. Like, don't you remember you're dead? I cracked up. I was like, Reggie, of all the ways you could have delivered mm -hmm. that line. Yeah. Um, well, I think by this so point, good. like, Reggie has seen so many things that you would That's not expect true. seeing at this point. That That's true. He including his last girlfriend peeling her own skin off her face to reveal yeah. like a demon underneath like by this point like reggie has seen some shit so he's dead... just kind of like whatever yeah, jody's I, here i guess i guess you know <laughs> um when they meet in the dream later on too and it's like a super oh God. casual convert and the, the end of the movie when Jordy's like, eh, you know, you're going to have to trust me. Not everything is what it looks like. It's like, what? Can you explain that a little bit? No. 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 <laughs> Figure it out. I, I, I also will say the ending, like, it kind of bothered me in the second one, how they use the same kind of, like, pull through the mirror. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they're, like, tripling down on that now when they pull them through the mirror, I'm like, all right, now this I'm going from, like, 
Yeah, like, I've gone from, like, being annoyed at that in the second one to, yeah. be like, all right, I see what we're doing. Like, yeah. I'm kind of kind of obsessed with that. Yeah, like, you know, <laughs> Freddie makes his quips, Michael Myers does the head tilt, you know, and Phantasm does the we're going to pull a child through a glass, <laughs> through glass at the end of every movie. That's going to be yep. our, our signature. I do like, mm-hmm. I made a note that this, there's a lot that is happening in this movie. There's almost like... Yeah too many things introduced because at times you're like wait there are deadite zombie nurses slash minions (laughs) slash the tall man is introducing you know like he's creating brain orbs like what and also jody's back oh and we have like a ninja and a murdering child like all of these things are coming together Mm -hmm. yet the movie's a pretty tight like 91 minutes like 88 minutes with before credits so nothing is like i don't feel things are glossed over but i don't think feel like things are like stretched super thin either and i wish more movies would do this like hey not everything needs to be two hours long we don't need to to do that so yeah it's a perfect sampler platter of Mm -hmm. like here are all the things you could want in just the perfect amount. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like if this was released in theaters and was just like Phantasm Lore of the Dead instead of Phantasm 3, like especially with it coming out around Halloween, could have done, I'm not saying it would have set the world on fire, but like <laughs> I could see people going to see this on Halloween. Like it's, yeah, I think it would be a lot of fun. Like I think it deserved, and I think now we're in on all of these like straight to video territory. But you know, mm-hmm. it's still a step above your typical straight to video fare for this time period. So, well, all right, that is our episode on Phantasm Three. We'll be discussing its follow up, Oblivion, next week, and then wrapping with Ravager. Um, So, Ariel, I know you'll be back for Ravager, but in the meantime, where can our listeners uh, see, read, or hear you? Yeah. Um, So, you can follow me on Twitter at Ari underscore Hellraiser, and I'm also on Instagram and Letterboxd at the same handle. And uh, all my writing and podcasting I'll, I'll post on my Twitter and um, definitely check out ghoulsmagazine.com. It's a UK-based horror site where uh, we review and celebrate horror through the female perspective. And there's a ton of free stuff on there, but there's also, um, if you want to pay for a membership, there's a ton of member-only content like interviews and editorials, Um and uh, podcast episodes that you can go back and listen to. Right now, I'm really recommending an article about um, the best severed penises in horror, uh, because that got us a really angry email from some dude this week that we all loved and celebrated. So go check out our our article on uh, the best severed penises in horror and enjoy that at Ghoul's Magazine. For free, or is that behind the paywall? That That's a free one. Excellent. So, so you, yeah. severed penises are free. Severed, yep. okay. Uh, and for everyone to enjoy. Did Terrifier 2 make the cut? Uh, it came out before Terrifier 2, oh, so we might okay. have to do a follow-up mm-hmm. article and just really piss off this dude. I don't <laughs> think guys realize when they send an email like that, like, I can, I, are you gonna, is the email posted anywhere? Like, do you? No. Okay. Yeah. But I can only imagine the tone and content of it. And I don't oh, think yeah. that, like, 
when people realize when they send that kind of email, like it's not going to change minds. It's going to be mocked behind the scenes. Like it's going to be ceaselessly mocked and used as a thing to bring the writer's joy. So, yes, excellent. Well, I will definitely look up that article because, you know, hey, we need to, we might have to do some research for future episodes. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. Rachel, how about yourself? Where can our listeners find you? Where are you hanging your hat right now? Yes, you can find me on Twitter at Vinyl Girl, G-R-R-R-L, and I'm on Instagram at The Vinyl Girl. Also on Letterboxd, been hanging out there, doing my best to make, you know, reviews of everything. Not, you know, super long, thoughtful reviews, just dorky <laughs> thoughts on films. So yeah, if you want to follow me there, that's a lot of fun. You can follow my phantasm of journey. And um, I'll be on an upcoming episode of The Losers Club. We're covering The Colorado Kid, which I just love. I love the hard case crime books. So that'll be really fun. And our dear friend, uh, Jen Adams will also be on that episode as well. Excellent. Well, listeners, you know you can find us at Pod and Pendulum over on Twitter. Uh, you can go to our website, podandthependulum.com, uh, where all of our back episodes and descriptions are there, like really nice kind of layout for there. We're using Pod Page for that, and that's super easy way to put a show page together. So podandthependulum.com. You can also leave us reviews there that will get posted to Apple, which is huge for us. We've gotten some nice reviews lately which is really helpful. A very easy way to support our show is to give us a five-star rating and review us with a few kind words. It helps new listeners find us. It just kind of boosts our profile a bit. So we do appreciate when you take a moment and do that. Uh, You can find my other show, Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, everywhere you get shows. Rachel just filled in for Jen on our recent episode on The Harbinger. Uh, So the third time we're using that phrase. Now, tonight, (laughs) um, we did the Andy Mittens 2022 uh, movie, The Harbinger, in our series looking back at the mental effects of covid uh and that was i honestly one of our best episodes like it was really good listen i would strongly recommend you go back and check that out you can find me at mike underscore snoonian on twitter and instagram you can find me on hive at mike chump change i keep feeling like i'm going to post there more and more just haven't made that full transition yet could also follow my letterbox over on letterbox at mike chump change where similar thing like i write like one paragraph reviews that are, tend to be kind of pithy like my review of vertigo was it was the best remake of faith no more's last <laughs> cup of sorrow video that you'll ever see um you know that was my note on on vertigo so that's the kind of hard-hitting analysis that you'll find over <laughs> over there. Um, and my goal this year is to, like, track, at the very least, every 2023 horror movie I watch just so I can come up with a year-end list a little bit easier and remember what came out when. Um, but, yeah, we will be back next week with our, or hopefully next week, with our episode on Phantasm Four: Oblivion. We'll wrap up our Phantasm coverage with Ravager, and then I th- we have our series are planned out through August right now. So we're going to be covering Happy Death Day, Psycho, Jaws. 
Uh, we have a f uh, the Purge movies. So we have like, a, oh, Ariel, just saw your face. You <laughs> drop me a note where you want to come in. Um, so we have a lot of our franchises planned out through the middle of the year. We'll also be dropping episodes on Evil Dead Rise and Scream 6 when those come out in order to kind of like be completest on our coverage of those franchises. And I will never need an excuse to talk Evil Dead or Scream movies, folks. Like there's never an excuse. The, you know, I'm debating, you know, little, we haven't really discussed this yet on our, our show uh, feed where we kind of discuss what we're going to cover. Like Saw 10 comes out this year. And I don't yes, know yes, yes. if I can get it to line up when Saw 10 comes out. Um, I'm not sure what we would have to do to make that happen. Um, but Just this... rework your whole schedule oh. for Saw. That's worth it. Is it? I've only yeah. watched the first two in Jigsaw. So... Oh, I've seen them all, baby. Okay. Oh, that's <laughs> like, my I favorite franchise. <laughs> All right, so we have some guests lined up for sure then. <laughs> Rachel, you might as well just, between that and The Purge, or I guess you're just, I, I mean, uh, Ariel, you're just part of the show at this point. Like, you've just joined the crew. I just elbowed my way yeah, in. That's fine. Yeah. Come I on in. I am all for that. I am all for that. The water's um, fine. <laughs> so, yeah, at some point we're going to cover Saw, is what people have asked about it, because people hate me. Uh, and want me to watch all of these movies. But no, we have our, well, it's like, shockingly, we have a lot of our year planned out. So that's what's going on right now. Uh, and thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon with Phantasm 4. Take care, everybody.